Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us. Uh, you're a God who uh, hasn't just allowed us to grow up around in the dark, uh, trying to figure you out, trying to figure out what the world's about, trying to figure out who we are. Uh, we thank you that you've made it clear uh, through your word uh, that your word uh, is founded on the word, your son, who became flesh uh, for us to be able to have a concrete uh, connection uh, to the truth of your word and your being. And we thank you for your words written down in scriptures. We thank you for this glorious prophecy that you gave through your prophet Isaiah. We thank you for the 14 weeks that we'll be able to work through this, this uh, great book, as difficult and as challenging it has been. I pray uh, that we have heard your clear word, clear messages, clear encouragements and challenges and even rebukes along the way. We pray that you will not let these lessons uh, go un- unheard or unheeded as we move forward uh, from here. As we come to this final uh, two chapters in, in this glorious book, we pray that you will cause us to, to have great wonder and awe and have great hope of this glorious future uh, that, 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 that awaits us. But we also pray that you give us clarity as to know who it is that will be there and who it is that won't. That you'll help us to respond in the only reasonable way, the only right and appropriate way, in trusting you in your word. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, kids these days uh, start difficult things young. Uh, uh, Stacy has been involved in debating since last year, year five. I could barely string a sentence together in primary five in Singapore, maybe because they don't teach us to, to read and talk uh, in Asia much. But in Australia, uh, Stacy started doing debating last year, and then she was properly competing this year uh, with other schools. And her final debate was just last Wednesday night. Uh, which I sadly couldn't attend, right, because I was at a meeting. Uh, but we were, I was helping her to prepare, uh, as, as you do, uh, as parents. And the topic for the final debate for this year was, uh, fairy tales should not always have a happy ending. Right, that was the debate topic. Fairy tales should not always have a happy ending. I'm like, what kind of topic is that? Uh, and she was on the affirmative, right? She was trying to argue that fairy tales should not have, always have, a happy ending. And she is a bit more like me. She's a realist. So she really kind of connected with the affirmative position. And we kind of pitied the other team, having to argue that fairy tales always had to have a happy ending. Because as Stacey and I were di- di- discussing, I mean, real life uh, often results in unhappy endings. And you would think that you want kids to be exposed to that, even in fairy tales, right? What, what more appropriate way than on a fairy tale to be able to expose people sometimes to the unhappy endings of life? No, but as I was thinking about it more, because I, I mean, you know me, I'm a, I'm a realist or pessimist, some of you may, may, may know me, uh, even then I, I started thinking about the hopes and expectations of our world when it comes to endings. Um, we love our happily ever afters, don't we? Well, when I watch a movie, as much as I like gritty shows, I, I do love a happy ending. Right, when I watch a TV series and you follow through you know, some character for one, two, ten, twelve seasons, you want the, 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 the conclusion to be a nice one. You know, Korean dramas, right? Who wants ever for that love triangle to, to, to split up? You wish that they all could get their man or their girl, right? At the end, you've got to be a bit of a masochist or a sadist to want an unhappy ending. Now, when it comes to real life, the assumption for many of us is that we will have a happily ever after, right? that we want a, um, a better place 
to be at after we die. Right? It is the Christian hope and expectation as well, isn't it? It is our hope and expectation to have a happy ending. And we have that happy ending, and we preach the good gospel, the good news of salvation and eternal life. We are the happy ending people, right? Now, Isaiah 65, verse 17 to 25, in a way, is the Christian happy ending, isn't it? And it's repeated, as, as, you, know, as you heard it read out by Gabe before in, in Revelation 21. I'm, I'm sure you know the content of these verses, if, if not the, the verse references themselves in Isaiah or in Revelation. And today we'll be exploring uh, this glorious passage and, and, and asking what is this glorious future like? Right? What is this glorious future like? What is this happy ending that we can look forward to? But perhaps more importantly for us, we'll be exploring the question, who will be a part of this future? Right? This future is glorious and is good, but the more important question for us today is who will be there? Right? Who will get to have this happily ever after? Now, the glorious future is good news and amazing news. But it is not good news for all, is it? Not everyone will get this happy ending. It's hard to know whether Isaiah finishes his letter, his book, his prophecy with a happy ending or not. As we read these two chapters, it's hard to know whether it's meant to be good news or bad news. But we'll get to that in a second. Now, this passage, because of that reason, good news, bad news, is going to be equal parts encouragement. I think it's probably going to be more encouragement than anything. But there's going to be a heavy dose of warning, of, of seriousness, as we get towards the end. Now, right at the center of these two final chapters of Isaiah, uh, not just in the middle in position, but in the middle in importance, uh, is this new heavens and new earth passage, right, of 17 to 25. Uh, and we're going to spend quite a bit of time exploring and appreciating these verses, now, before we, we do get into reading it, I want us to remind us of the context right, out of which these chapters, these glorious blessings come. Now, chapter 65 is God's answer right, to Isaiah's prayer in the previous two chapters. If you remember last week, uh, leading up to these two final chapters, is Isaiah almost on his knees, right, begging God for mercy, having reflected on how sinful the people continue to be. You turn one page back to chapter 64, verse 1. You hear this heart-wrenching prayer of Isaiah, 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the minders might quake at your presence, right? God, would you split heaven apart, come down and fix this mess? And Isaiah's cry for mercy and deliverance uh, is born out of their, their trapped, they're being trapped in sin and, and rebellion and idolatry and all manner of false worship, as we saw last week. And here is God's answer in chapter 65 and 66, God's amazingly gracious answer. Pick up from verse 1, 65 verse 1. In answer to Isaiah's prayer, God says, I was ready, ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here am I, here am I, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually, sacrificing in gardens and making offering on bricks, who sit in tombs and spend the night in secret places, who eat pig's flesh and broth of tainted meat is in their vessels. And the people haven't changed one bit at all. Yet God tells them, I am ready to be sought 
and ready to be found. I'm standing here with open arms, willing and wanting to take you back in. This is not a picture of amazing grace. Maybe in life you find yourself walking into a situation where a good friend, someone you trusted, is being disloyal or unfaithful to you. Right, maybe you, you have the, the, the really terrible situation of walking into unfaithfulness in your marriage or, or in, your, in your close circle of friends. You enter into a situation where you find out that they're bad-mouthing you or, or gossiping behind your back. How difficult is it then to be relationally open? Won't you repel yourself from them and, and be hurt and, and move away from people who are like that? The Lord God faced a level of unfaithfulness and betrayal that exceeds anything anyone would ever have to endure in this life. Yet God says, I am ready to be sought. I am willing to welcome you back in. Now, if that isn't gracious gracious enough, the Lord piles on grace upon grace, not only in restoring relationship, but in heaping on blessing that he wants to give. He doesn't just want to restore relationship, he actually wants to bless further. And in a way, that's the context, right, of this new heavens and new earth. The dark backdrop helps us to appreciate the glorious goodness of the blessing of reconciliation with God and a future that He's preparing for us. Now, scattered throughout these two chapters are snippets of blessing language, but I feel they all come together and are connected to the blessing of the new heavens and earth. So we'll just home in right here and explore and enjoy these verses. Now, before we, we do get in to examine these uh, eight verses, I want us to know that these verses aren't just describing uh, some, some uh, principal reality, right? Some intellectual idea of a future. I want us to be able to experience this. I want you to imagine, right? I know we're not, some of us are not always very imaginative, but I want you to, to, to have a picture being painted in your mind of what this glorious future will be like. Now, obviously, there's metaphors and word pictures here, but I want you to imagine what it feels like to be here as we go through these things. Now, firstly, we see in verse 17 that the new heavens and earth is a new creation. Right? The word heavens and earth uh, is a Hebrew way of describing the sky and the land, right? i.e. creation. So you have the old heavens and earth, and you have the new one, the old creation, this one we live in, but we have a new one, a new creation. God will bring about a new creation. Now, not something totally different that we cannot recognize, but something that's totally renewed, right? Renewed, restored, redeemed. Like the, the glorified version of the world that we live in. Right? In a way, it's, it's the fulfillment of, of everything that, we, that is potential that we see in this world, but more. Because we, we can't fully see the glorious potential of this world, how broken it is. It will be a place that brings utter transformation and fulfillment of the hopes that we already have in this broken creation that we, that we know will never be properly fulfilled. Now, back when I was uh, working as a staff worker in the University of New South Wales, uh, in a church there as a trainee, uh, there were a few architecture students, uh, and once in a while you would see them at different times of the year carrying right, their project. Right? They would have to uh, make, uh, build a model of, of the drawing that they that they, that they have of a, of a building or a structure, and then they will build it. And, and from a distance, when you see them walking around with a stressed look on their face, they're always stressed. Architecture students, isn't that right, Andrew? 
right? So my children are not allowed to do architecture, just to let you know. They're just so stressed, right? They spend 24 hours, 72 hours, a whole week just in the lab making this thing. And it looks so great from a distance until you come close. And, and you could see that it was just a, a, a mass of sticks and, and cardboard and glue, right? And some of it wasn't that great because they probably haven't slept for three days. And it was so fragile, easily broken, yet they're carrying around right, UNSW. UNSW is so crowded, right? Be thankful for UQ, so much space. UNSW, it's... It's a mess. Anyway, they're walking around stressed out that their fragile little structure is going to be destroyed. Now, these models, flimsy, right? put, apart, put together by glue, falling apart. But if these structures were ever to be made for real, now that would be a totally different thing altogether, wouldn't it? How glorious that structure would be. Maybe some of you were here when Indrapilly was being planned for its upgrade, you know, the, the shopping center. I think it's $550 million upgrade for those of you who were around about four years ago, five years ago. And they had this model that was on the third floor. But once the, the building got built and the $550 million got spent, who cares about that model? It's got nothing compared to the real thing. Nothing compared to the real thing. The new creation will bring such a renewal that the former things shall not be remembered. That model in the third floor has been put away into some back office somewhere because it's, the real thing has arrived. So glorious will the new creation be that this sin-broken creation with all of its disasters and catastrophes, all of its wars and conflicts, all of its death and disease and distress, all of its pain and frustration and disappointments, will no longer come to mind. How amazing is that? We, we, we would love to forget <clears throat> some of the things that happened to us in the past. We would love to forget, won't we? But all we can do is sweep it under the carpet maybe or, or, or shove it into the recesses of our mind, but they always have a tendency to come out again and, and distress us again and, and cause us anxiety again. But in this new creation, the former things of this broken world will no longer be remembered. The new creation is new, renewed, and glorious in such a way that we'll forget about the pains and troubles of this life. Now, the new creation also brings about something great, right? Uh, there's three things that we'll see as we go on. It, firstly, it brings about eternal relational joy. Right? That's verse 18 to 20. It's a place of unfailing stability and security. Verse 21 to 22. And then it's a place of uninterrupted peace with God and with all creation, verses 23 to 25. Right, we're going to work through these. Right, firstly, eternal relational joy, verse 18. Have a look. Chapter 65, verse 18. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. Now what do we see here? Firstly, we see that it will be a forever joy. And then we see that it will be a relational joy, right? Forever joy and a relational joy. God will rejoice and be glad in His people. Right? And because it begins with God rejoicing and being glad over the people, the result is that we will have a, 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 it will spring up from us a joy and gladness that we will have with each other in God's new heavenly city, Jerusalem, right? This just heavenly Jerusalem that we've been looking at for the last 64 chapters. There is something about relational joy, isn't it, that tops all these other joys that we experience in life. 
I'm sure you've experienced it. Right? There, is, there is certainly joy in material things. Right? There is joy when we get good grades, and I'm sure many of you are looking forward to that. Uh, there is joy when we achieve um, things that we've worked hard for in music or in sport or in, in work. Uh, there is joy in, in being able to obtain precious possessions that we've worked hard for and saved up for. There's certainly joy in those things. But joy in relationships, I think that's next level, isn't it? When there's unexpected reconciliation and forgiveness, when there is a true harmony restored after a period of conflict, when we experience the giving and receiving of goodness and sacrificial love from others. You know, an experience of being uh, in the airport and, and waiting for that loved one you haven't seen for so long to come out through those doors. Like, you know that movie, Love Actually? It's probably a bit too, too old now for most of you. You know, watch Love Actually, or congregation that's old enough. Yeah. And, and it's this scene at the beginning and the end, right? The airport scene. I love that scene. Um, you know, when we, when we see the bride walking down the aisle and the husband turns in that moment of magic. Um, when a baby is born and the mother cradles a newborn for the first time and the husband crowded around, that, that relational joy. Or maybe at the end of life, as you're lying there in bed, right, your body taken over by cancer, struggling to breathe and having a friend sit next to you holding your hand, singing a song, whispering a prayer in your ear. I don't know. I mean, <clears throat> the joy I've seen in people in that situation because of the relational connection and love that tops any other joy in this life. That's next level of joy, right? Extraordinary joy. <clears throat> uh, it's also the joy of, of seeing people come to be reconnected to God. Uh, in the last few weeks, it's amazingly, there's been a flood of new believers in our community. It seems that every other week, there will be another message on, on different Facebook groups that we are part of. And, and people coming to faith in Jesus Christ, reconciled back to God. What a buzz that has been for so many of us. The rejoicing that we feel here as well as the rejoicing in heaven. We were created for a relationship with God and with each other, which is why relational joy tops every other joy. This new creation is a place of eternal relational joy. The expressions of broken relationships will not be there, right? That's why there's, there's no crying, there's no weeping as a result of unfaithfulness and betrayal of hurtful words and actions. No more death to separate loved ones from each other. We right? live in a world that is filled with sin and death and distress, which is why the joys of this world will never last. But in a new heavens and a new earth, it will last. There will be eternal joy there. Now, the images uh, of uh, verse 18 to 20 are images of uh, eternal relational joy. Then we turn to verse 21 to 23, we see images of unfailing stability and an end to insecurity. Verse 21. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Now these are images of permanence. Things that will last, that won't be taken away. Right? Now I want you to imagine for a moment being an Israelite, right, listening to this prophecy. 
as we've been talking about, right? They're, they're, they're under invasion, right? Under the threat of war from the Assyrians. Uh, and, 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 um, and, and you have an experience of ongoing war and displacement. And you think back uh, as you're listening to this, maybe, uh, maybe the people that are reading this are, are, have returned back from exile, right? So maybe it's around 520 BC. Maybe they pull this uh, prophecy of Isaiah out and they read it. And they remember yeah, their great-grandparents, uh, a few generations back, lived in Judah, right, under the threat of invasion from Assyria. Your grandparents have seen uh, the rise of Assyria uh, and, and, and the removal of the northern kingdom from their homes, right, exiled, right, around 722 BC. And your grandparents have also seen the rise of a Babylon. And, and they've taken over Assyria, and, and they're now coming to invade Judah. And, and your parents have experienced being exiled by them to Babylon. And your experience now is to have been brought home back into Jerusalem. Experience of being conquered and being exiled, or moving from one place to another all the time. And now under King Cyrus, you're under another rule, but you're home. But for how long? You're home, but for how long? What's happened to your field and house while you've been away? What, what's happen- what will happen if you, if you start to build again? If you start to build a house or, or start a vineyard from scratch? <clears throat> and apparently, it's a lot of work to go into, putting, uh, into building a vineyard. Steve, if you're thinking about building one, it takes about 10 to 12 years for you to harvest your first fruit. And even then, it's not very good, is it? 10 to 12 years. Yeah, it's a long time, long effort. How long will it last? How long before something happens to you or your family or your, or your nation that will mean you'll lose it all again? Right? If you're an Israelite living then, it's almost guaranteed that something's going to happen to you. Now, even in our time, we have the same sense of instability in our lives, don't we? We are more global than ever. Most of us sitting in this room right now, over the age of 25, have never lived in the same house. Some of us have lived in, in double-digit places in our lives. Most of us over the age of 40 probably have uh, not been in the same job. The economy is unstable. Who knows where we will need to go in search of a job? Should we be a, buy a house and enter into the world of mortgage and mortgage stress? Who knows when we'll need to uproot? Our life, perhaps now more than ever, is filled with instability. And with that comes the anxiety of insecurity, the worries. How much time and energy and worry do we spend of our adult lives worrying about instability and insecurity? And what do we do in response? Right? We, we, to combat this, we, we work to the bone, don't we? We make risky investments. We study hard. We are made to study hard. We are pushed to study hard by our parents, all with the hope of creating stability and security in our lives. But we know, don't we, that in this world it cannot be found. We try and, and grasp at a dream that can never be realized. The new creation, though, it will be realized. In the new creation, there will be no invasion. There will be no unexpected, unforeseen need to move. No economic downturn. No visa restrictions or rejections. There will be no lack of necessary qualifications that prevent you from getting a job. There will be permanence and stability and end to insecurity. In verse 22, the picture of the children of God is, is, is like oaks. A tree that will stand, right, proud for hundreds of years while people come and go. 
And with permanence comes enjoyment without fear. With stability comes confidence. To be able to start a project knowing that you'll see it through to the end. As we look into the new creation in the Bible, it's a place of work, just like the first creation was, right? But I work without futility. Uh, it, it'll be a, 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 of a totally different nature to the work here, without futility and without frustration. It reverses the curse, isn't it, the fall of man. But God cursed the land and the ground, our work with futility. It reverses the hevel, right? The meaninglessness, the emptiness of Ecclesiastes that many of us are familiar with. Now, many of us here look tired at the end of a long week of work or school or just life in general, endless chores and frustrating pursuits. Isn't it blissful to think about a future where there will not be this kind of futility and this kind of instability and insecurity? Put your hopes there, not here. Now, the images of verse 18 to 20 are eternal relational joy, 21 to 22 of unfailing stability and an end to insecurity. The images of verses 23 to 25 are images of uninterrupted peace with God and with creation. Pick it up from verse 23. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. Now these verses are just dripping, aren't they, with intimacy and connection. Intimacy and connection. The new heavens and earth will be a place where relationship and communication uh, lines between us and God are restored. It's so restored that God answers us before we even ask. Right? Where He hears before we even speak. You know how sometimes you see couples and they finish each other's sentences? It's kind of gross, right? It's kind of like... But it's kind of nice too, isn't it? They know each other so well. They can finish each other's sentences. But God, He will hear us before we even speak. He will answer us before we even ask. And for Israel, hearing this is it's just unimaginable. Uh, they were always so separate from God, weren't they? They always needed a mediator, a priest, to be able to approach God. And even then, in their growing sinfulness and rebellion, they kept being pushed further and further away, and not firstly away from the temple, and then away from Jerusalem and into exile. And there was never a direct connection, let alone this kind of intimate connection. I think for us, even as Christians today, it can feel that way sometimes, can't it? The feeling like our prayers are bouncing off the ceilings. The feeling of shame and guilt that makes us feel like God is far away from us, that there is a wall between us. And it doesn't help that God is spirit and we can't see him and we can't touch him. And that adds to our sense of distance, of having a communication problem with God. Now, of course, that's not true, but it feels that way. But in its new creation, it won't be like that. There will be uninterrupted peace and connection with God. And with creation also, right? Verse 25, the, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. Now watch any nature channel and you will understand just how radical this picture is in verse 25. Right? Our natural world is one of prey and predator, right? Eat or be eaten. Conflict is in the very nature of things. Not just in the animal world, but in the human world as well, isn't it? Now, in 1971, Coca-Cola right, created a jingle 
that is very famous, one of the most influential, I think top number eight most influential ad of ever, ever created. Anyone know this ad I'm talking about? Right, there's a jingle that was created for this advertisement, and I think you know it, you sing it with me, okay? I'd like to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. But you don't know the second line, right? Second line is, I'd like to buy the world a Coke and keep it company. Okay, but don't worry about it. We all gather around Coke and be one as humanity. Who's never heard that song, by the way? Oh, wow, okay. So famous, I like to teach. Okay, okay maybe you know John Lennon. John Lennon's song, Imagine. Imagine all the people, right? Living as one, harmony, and all that stuff. It's a pipe dream, isn't it? The world can't gather around Coke, and it certainly can't gather around imagining harmony and peace. Not in this creation. But in the new creation, that's a totally different story. Why? Because God recreates a new creation because God is there and sin is not. In the new creation, it is not a pipe dream to live in harmony as one. It will be a certain future reality. Everything that spoils this world, that spoils the animal world, spoils the human world, it will be gone. Now, I hope our time exploring the new heavens and new earth has, has made us long to want to be there. The, these things aren't just, you know, distant truths. That's why I want you to connect with what this is. Because this is the, the future reality that is held up for us to enjoy and to have. But then the question then, then is asked is, is, who will be there, right? This glorious future that sounds awesome, we have to ask her who will be there. And I guess we've got to ask ourselves, who wouldn't want to be there? Now, let's get through these chapters to see whether we can get clarity of this, because Isaiah makes it very clear in these two chapters who will be there, and sadly, who won't be there as well. Start with chapter 68, 5, verse 8, right? 65, 8. And let's hear carefully who will be there. Thus says the Lord... As the new wine is found in the cluster, and they say, do not destroy it, for there is a blessing in it, so I will do for my servant's sake. Then in the next verse, it talks about my chosen, right? My servants. Then in verse 10, God says, it is for my people who have sought me. And then again in verse 13 to 16, repeated many times, my servants, my servants, my servants will receive these blessings. Then finally, turn over to chapter 66, verse 2. 66, verse 2. And I'm going to read this one out, okay? Because this tells us who is it that becomes a servant, okay? But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Now, who will be there? The servants of God, those who seek after God, who listen to his word and respond to it. What does it mean to respond to God's word? By, by humbly receiving it, trembling before the weightiness of the word of the almighty God. To be contrite means to be cut up in your heart at your sin and to receive the salvation that God gives. That's what it means to be a servant. It's not a new message. You've been here for the past 13 weeks you would have heard this message over and over again. It's, it's the message of put your trust in God, the only Savior. Listen to His word and respond. 
But Isaiah isn't satisfied. We're just encouraging and, and laying out a challenge for us to respond in faith. He finishes his prophecy with a strong and confronting warning as well. Right? To be able to show you the alternative that you must avoid. He wants us to know who won't be there. Now, all that Isaiah says about this group can be summed up in chapter 66, verse 3 to 4. Right? Three, second part of verse 3 to 4. Follow along with me. Chapter 66, 3b to 4. These have chosen their own ways, and their soul delights in their abominations. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them because, because when I called, no one answered. When I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. But primarily in Isaiah's mind, in God's words, are those who ought to know God, but insist on and persist in sin, in false worship, in, in idolatry, in self-rule. They choose their own ways. They close their ears and hearts to God. And we're told that they're those who forsake God. So you've got two groups, right? Those who are servants and those who are forsakers. And the one thing that separates these two very clearly is the response to God's word, listening, receiving, and trusting. The servants do that, but the forsakers do not. And Isaiah says that the good news of the new heavens and earth is not, not for them. By their own choice, they forfeit the blessing of God and they end up with the horrific judgment which they themselves choose and deserve. And as you read through these two chapters and through Isaiah, you'll hear the words of destruction and desolation. They will face a joyless, unsatisfied, eternally unstable and peaceless eternity. It's a confronting truth to face. Now turn with me to the last three verses, right? We'll finish on these two last three verses and explore implications for this for us. Chapter 66, verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. So it begins, the end begins with good news, right? For the faithful servants. But these are only the second last verse of Isaiah. There's one more. Verse 24. And they, these servants, shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. What a way to end. I know, were you expecting this as the last verse of these 66 chapters? The image of the, the saved, the servants, looking at the horrific fate of the forsakers, of the rebels. But they, they, they're there to look, not to gloat. How could you ever gloat at such tragedy? Right? They're not there to gloat. They're not there to feel smug or to feel self-righteous, for they're saved but by the grace of God. No, they look to realize and be relieved at the fate that they've been saved from. They look to realize and be relieved at the fate that to be saved from. But by the grace of God, there I go. It, it, it's like 
being in a junction and, and the light turns green and for some reason you hesitate to go into the intersection and then suddenly a truck just rams this car and there's carnage in front of you. As you look upon that scene, you, you, thank, you thank God, you thank whatever, you, thank some, you just feel relieved that it could have been me being destroyed like that. You sit there in your car, shocked and relieved, knowing that it could have been you. And that is the image that Isaiah leaves us to finish this prophecy. You could be one of two people. You could be the servant or you could be a forsaker. And Isaiah ends like this because heaven and hell hangs in the balance. Heaven and hell hangs in the balance. He writes and he finishes to urge us to make the right and the only sensible choice. Why did God speak through the prophet Isaiah in these 66 chapters? It's so that those who read and those who listen will respond. Respond in faith. God has been so gracious, hasn't he? To sinners like you and me, he has, he has been amazingly gracious to, to, to seek us, to open his arms out to receive us who don't deserve it. He has revealed to us in, in Isaiah that he, he's raising up a, a conquering king, a suffering servant, one who will save us from our sins and bring us home. And all the way through, he's been urging us to listen and to respond. To listen and respond. And we know that Isaiah points us forward to the one that we ought to listen and respond to, the Lord Jesus Christ. God's King, God's servant, God's conqueror. It is Him who we ought to trust. Now there is nothing, there is nothing in this world that is worth doing that prevents us from hearing God speak and responding. There is nothing worth doing in this world that is going to prevent us from responding to God's word. You know, for us, we, we struggle, I think, to, to want to listen carefully to God's word. Maybe, maybe we find it difficult to do our quiet time because we're so busy, because we're too lazy. Maybe we, we spend much more time surfing YouTube, right, watching Netflix, catching a Korean drama. Sometimes I find myself doing worthless things like that where I could be trying to find ways to listen and respond to God's word more. Sometimes we find ourselves studying so much working so hard and so long, right? not going to SALT, not going to YF, not going to SOS, not going to Rivers of Living Water, not going to husband's group or women's group or whatever fellowship group that we know allows us and encourages us and challenges us to sit under God's word and to respond. Others of us are so wrapped up with idolatry, success, self-image, possessions, enjoyment, that even though we read the word, it doesn't connect with us because there are idols that have captured our hearts. There is nothing worth doing in this world that will prevent us from listening and responding to God's word. Heaven and hell hangs in the balance. God presents to us the happily ever after that we long for and yearn for and that we need. The only thing that will prevent us from doing that is to forsake his word and to stop trusting him. So on the flip side, what can we do? Keep coming to his word. Keep listening. Keep opening your heart and responding. Trust in Jesus and live for him. That is all. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, as we come to the end of uh, Isaiah, we, we thank you so much that you have spoken so powerfully, so clearly, so challengingly to us through the series. We thank you for the revelation of such amazing grace that to a people like Israel, in the way that they were deserving your judgment, experiencing your judgment as they were exiled by Assyria and then by Babylon, but even as they were restored by the king, of Cyrus, uh, king Cyrus of Persia and brought back to, to their land, you gave them this word for them to understand why all these things have happened. To better understand that you are preparing for us a king, a servant, a conqueror that will bring us ultimate salvation. We thank you that in your word today, you've given us such a clear picture of what the future good news, the good life, eternal life that you have prepared for us in the new heavens and new earth. And we thank you so much that with such clarity you tell us, you are the God we ought to trust. The gospel of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, is what we ought to trust. That we are to live our lives always listening to you, always responding with humility, with fear, with contriteness of heart, with obedience. So please help us to do that. Please remove the things that prevent us from doing so. Please remove the idols from our hearts that cause us to reject your word. Please help us to use our time in a way that, that does not prevent us from hearing you. There is no study worth doing. There is no work worth working. There is no achievement worth gaining. There is no possession worth having that would take the new heavens and new earth away from us. So please help us to live each day in faithful response to you and your word. Pray in Jesus' name.